Well, turn with me to Isaiah 9 if you have a Bible. Isaiah, pretty much in the middle of the Old Testament, and we are in the third week of our Advent, Advent series. And there's been a, a theme to this or a direction to this. The first week we looked at the, the beauty of creation, and the, the next week we looked at chaos, the brokenness of our world. And today we're going to look at that, that prophecy looking forward to uh, the coming Messiah. As many of you know, and you've heard some of the stories before God called me into pastoral ministry. I was a sports anchor and reporter with CNN and NBC and then for a while at the desk in the evenings. But when I was a reporter, my job was to go and get sound uh, to interview the players after games. And, um, you know, whether it was a hero, somebody who'd done something remarkable or a zero, somebody who had failed in a spectacular way. Those were the people that I approached in the lockers uh, that I would go to and and it was exhilarating and it was fun and, you know, it was exciting to interview professional athletes and to be in that setting. But the interviews themselves were often disappointing because, you know how it is. I mean, athletes, as you've heard and seen, they use a lot of the same cliches. So I get the same cliche. Well, just taking it one day at a time, one game at a time, or just trying to help the team. Or it was an ugly win, but, you know, we'll take it and those sorts of things. And so, you know, I could almost expect the answers. But every once in a while, somebody would make a guarantee You've heard these, right? Someone say, I, I guarantee that the next time we play these guys, we will be victorious, or I guarantee that we'll make it to the playoffs. And those added a new element of intrigue and excitement, but even those were kind of empty because the reality is nobody could really ensure that they would be faithful to their guarantee because they didn't know what would happen. They could leave the arena and be hit by a bus. They could get a terrible illness, they could get in a car accident, anything could happen, so they couldn't really make that sort of guarantee. We, we were unable to do that. You can't make guarantees and promises unless you have the absolute ability to fulfill them, which none of us really does. The French reformer John Calvin wrote, innumerable are the evils that beset human life, innumerable too the deaths that threaten it. We need not go beyond ourselves since our body is the receptacle of a thousand diseases. A man cannot go about unburdened by many forms of his own destruction and without drawing out of a life enveloped, as it were, with death. Now, we saw last week uh, when we were in Ecclesiastes that, uh, that life is a series of ups and downs, isn't it? It's highs and lows. And we have those really good days. And then we have those really bad days. And we have moments of just incredible happiness and moments of terrible sadness. And this is true, not just of the non-Christian. This is true of the Christian. We have ups and downs. In fact, as many have said, the battle doesn't really rage hottest until we become followers of Christ, because then we enter into a spiritual warfare. We're not spared as Christians the difficulties of living in this life. We actually invite even greater suffering. That's what Jesus said. And I think one of the biggest struggles of the Christian life, as we go through heartache and we look around at our world and we have these disappointments, and I've, I've had multiple people say to me in the last week, like, I can't wait for 2023 to be over. I'm so ready for this year to be over because it's been so hard. And I think one of the biggest struggles is the struggle to believe that God is actually going to fulfill his promises. You know, that God is actually going to make right everything that's wrong with this broken world. Because when we look around at our world, we see all the things that are going on. It doesn't look like there's a lot of redemption taking place. It looks like things are getting worse and worse. And we, we, 
we see things that are going on we can't make sense of, and we, we read things, we watch things, and uh, we say, man, this world is just absolutely out of control. And at times, it seems like God's done with his world. He's not actually doing a work of redeeming it. But the reason we can know for certain that God is faithful and will do what he says is because he's always been faithful and he's always done what he said he would do. And history is the record of God fulfilling his promises. Now, the season of Advent, one of the reasons why we carve out, we take a break. We're normally working our way through a book of the Bible, section by section, uh, as it were. But we take a break during Advent because it's really, it's a season intended to strengthen our faith in God's future intentions as we look back at the way he's fulfilled his promises in the past. And you know, you know how it is with promises. Some promises are really hard to, to measure and determine, you know, did a person really keep that promises or not? Because they're kind of ethereal. You know, someone may say, I promise to love you more every day. But that's kind of hard to measure, isn't it? I mean, how do you know if a person loves you more today than they did last week? Um, but the promises of God are actually specific, concrete promises that can only be fulfilled at times in certain places, by certain people, and through certain events. And so the promises of God actually can be confirmed. This morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, which helps us to confirm God's promises and this is, I think, pretty fascinating that the prophecies of Isaiah are so specific and so accurate uh, that many, quote, scholars deny that Isaiah could have ever written uh, the, the book of Isaiah, or certainly during the, the, the time in which it was dated. They say these weren't written before the events occurred, but after, because no one could have predicted with such accuracy when and where the Messiah would be born. There's a, a late scholar, uh, liberal scholar by the name of uh, Norman Gottwald, who just died, I think, last year, but he wrote, when the prophetic writings are studied in their context, apart from dogmatic preconviction, it is clear that no prophet leaped across the centuries and foresaw the specific person, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, actually, Norman's wrong on that. The truth of the matter is God's plan has always been to crush the head of Satan, to redeem this sin-cursed and broken world, to rescue and save and deliver his own people through his son, through the promised one. And God has progressively revealed his intentions with greater specificity through the prophets, his mouthpieces. One of those prophets, again, was, uh, was Isaiah. And through this oracle, which is just another word for a prophecy of Isaiah, we're going to see uh, the three very unique characteristics of God's promises. What are those things that make God's promises different than anyone else's promises? So Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Here reads the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling or tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So just a little bit of context here. The book of Isaiah is a very long book. And if you're, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're using our Seeing Jesus Together pro, uh, program or anything else, you know when you get to the book of Isaiah, it's tough. It's a long slog. There are a lot of chapters. It's one of the longest books of the Bible in terms of Hebrew words. And it's a lot of judgment and a lot of war and a lot of uh, the prediction of, of um, violence. And so it's a long book. It tells the story of Israel, and in particular, uh, Israel's failure to obey God, Israel's idolatry, and yet God's continued plea to repent and be restored. So there's judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy, that's the rhythm. Throughout history, the nation of Israel has has had some really high highs and some really uh, low lows. Times of prosperity, unlike anything the world has seen, like in the days of King David and King Solomon, where uh, it was peaceful and there was incredible wealth and opulence and everything you can imagine. Uh, but also, the country has, has experienced times when uh, they've gone through slavery and oppression and they have been violently, uh, nearly wiped out, in fact, at times. Well, when Isaiah prophesied, some, some 750 years before Jesus was born, the, the glory days are, are long gone. So you know what happened when King David was in, at the throne and King Solomon, but all that's over. That's, that's been centuries ago at this time. And the United Kingdom's divided. Israel's surrounded on, on all sides by bullying nations. Assyria to the north, Egypt uh, to the south, Babylon to the east and to the west. There's the Mediterranean Sea, so they can't really flee. So they are absolutely surrounded by nations who are threatening destruction. And at the time of this writing, that is to say Isaiah chapter 9, Israel is on the cusp of one of the lowest times in its history. The prophet has given them a word from God and the forecast calls for pain, unimaginable pain. The people of Israel would be ransacked, brutalized, pillaged, and enslaved, all because of their idolatry and their disobedience. So all of this, this is chapters 8 and 9. God is saying through Isaiah, brace yourself because really, really bad times are coming. And this is God's response to the idolatry of the nation, the idolatry of his own covenant people. If you were to look at a map, of Israel, you'd see at the top or the northern part, Zebulun and Naphtali, at the extreme north, kind of on the outskirts, where this was the first part of the promised land that would be overtaken and collapsed to the Assyrians under the reign of Tiglath Pileser in 733, the first region to be really inhabited by people other than Jewish people, Israelites. Uh, this is what verse 1 means when it calls the area Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. This is this is forecasting a time when Israel would be driven out of the land. Uh, the whole region would be humbled, would be taken over by non-Jewish people, and the descendants of Israel would become strangers, slaves in their own land. One pastor and theologian, Gilbert, uh, Greg Gilbert, recounts the situation like this. The nation of Israel as a whole 
forsakes the Lord, becomes blind and deaf to his word, and gives itself in worship to foreign gods. So Isaiah's message is a story of God's response to Judah's sin, his judgment against them, and eventually, astonishingly, his promise to forgive them and restore them and make them glorious again. But here's the thing. The the promise to restore, the promise of glory again, would not be fulfilled in the way that anybody imagined. Of course, the people of Israel were thinking this would happen through a series of conquests and military victories, that that God would bring about um, these conquerors, these kings, who would these individuals who would who would regain control. But uh, in fact, it would not happen that way. It would not be a series of individuals ultimately, but one royal, indeed divine king. Through Isaiah, we see all these pointers to the Messiah, the one who would ultimately restore peace and shalom. So Isaiah calls these folks in verse 2, those who once walked in deep darkness, but he, then he says, on them a light has shone. The phrase deep darkness that Isaiah uses there is literally the death shadow. It's a poetic way to talk about living in oppression and, and fear and terror. Have you ever had a season in your life or maybe been in a scenario where you just were absolutely terrified? You can't rest. You can't eat. Food doesn't go down well. Everything is turned upside down. This is the death shadow. This is the deep darkness. But Isaiah 9 is also pointing us forward. In fact, it says, on them a light has shone. This is a reference to God's coming deliverance through a person. In other words, even as God, he he talks about all this coming judgment, God has not forgotten his promise now, here's our first point as it relates to the difference between God's promises and everyone else's. Dark days don't diminish or nullify God's promises. They indicate that God is doing something we can't immediately see. I think what's the first thing that we tend to think or, or go through our mind when we go through a really difficult season? First, you know, maybe we may ask the question, why God? Why, why are you doing this to me? Maybe the next question or a follow-up would be, what have I done? Especially if we have sort of a moralistic bent and we believe that God, you know, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And that's kind of how it works. And we go through something bad. We, th- we say, what have I done, God? Now, of course, we can then move further into our questioning. And then we start to wonder, God, are you even here? Where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you abandoned me? Those dark times often cause us to think that God has indeed forgotten us. But God has never failed to keep a promise, and he's not going to start now. He is at work, and we only see a very small, infinitesimal snippet, rather, of what is going on. But God sees it all, and he has ordained good for his children. I think this is one of the hardest things you know, for us as a Christian, especially when we're going through suffering, is to, is to really take in and accept that we have such a limited perspective. We have such a small and finite perspective, and yet God, He knows it all. He sees it all. Everything is laid bare before Him, and we know through the Scriptures that He's sovereign and good. He has good things ordained for his children, even when everything around us and everything we're going through seems to suggest the opposite. When we go through hard times, it doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. It 
just means that God's doing something that we can't immediately see. Now, I'm going to come back to verses 3 through 6, but I want to skip down to verses 6 and 7. The text reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Now, the word for in verse 6 is important. It is for or because of a child that we can have hope, that we can anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises and the restoration that I just talked about. This child is, is unlike any child that's ever been born. In fact, there are four titles ascribed to that child that you can only give to God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, it's kind of confusing, I'll get to that in a minute, Prince of Peace, and we're not going to look at all of these in, in tremendous depth, but they all point to the majesty and in fact the deity of Christ, the one who was to come, the one who would be born. These are royal titles that spell out the attributes of God. We've had, uh, you know, I said that for many, for some, 2023 was a really hard year, and you know, I've heard, heard this from multiple people, but for some people, it was a great year. And we had in 2023, we had a number of uh, families who gave birth to a new baby, boy or girl. We had a lot of, in fact, I think it was, what, a month ago or three weeks ago for our parent-child dedication. We had seven babies up there. So we have a lot of babies. And it's always fascinating to me to, to hear the discussion, I mean, usually, you know, afterward, but to hear the discussion recounted of, of how a child's name was chosen. You know, this can... This can really cause some conflict between a, an expecting mom and dad. Dad may want a particular name. Mom wants another name. Um, and so it's interesting to hear how kind of those discussions, you know, took place. But one of the things that I've noticed now is it's, it's becoming very uh, popular to, to name after someone in your family, a grandparent. And so you see more, um, you know, I've seen more Eleanor's and Mabel's and uh, for boys, you know, Archie's and August's and those sorts of things. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's really cool, right? I mean, naming after some week, my son and daughter-in-law are expecting their second child and they know it's a boy. They had the, the ultrasound a few weeks ago and they're calling the baby, baby Johnny. And, um, and I'm actually, my name is actually John Peary Sloan, the fourth. My son's name is John Peary Sloan, the fifth. He goes by Quinn, which is Latin for fifth. We didn't Tried to avoid confusion in the home. And they have said, they, they call the baby, Baby Johnny, which I believe, unless they're just, you know, I don't know, trolling us. But I think they're actually going to name, name the baby John Peary Sloan the sixth. I mean, there's something, about, I never, we never said one time you have to do that. I never said I'd be hurt if you didn't. Not, not at all. Whatever they want to do. But there's something significant even today about a person's name. Well, Magnif multiply that by a hundred going back in the ancient Near Eastern world, back in the time of uh, the prophecy here. Um, a person's name was absolutely uh, a, a very important because the person's name was meant to capture something about that person. Uh, Isaac, for example, the name, name Isaac means laughter. You remember the story maybe in Genesis. Noah means rest or peace. 
So when Isaiah is speaking of the name of the coming Messiah and says his name will be Mighty God, Eternal Father, etc., he's telling something about the characteristics of the Messiah, the very attributes of the Messiah. And these are the attributes of God. He is the wonderful counselor. This refers to one who possesses divine wisdom, wisdom that only comes from above. He is the mighty God. That is, he has the power to execute his wise plans. Unlike, you know, the professional athletes that I referenced in my introduction, um, this mighty God has the, the power and the ability to make guarantees and see to it that those guarantees are fulfilled. He is the everlasting father. Now, this is, I, I said this is a little tricky. It doesn't mean that the son is also the father. You know, Christianity has always confessed throughout history that there's one God who forever exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Isaiah is not saying that the Father is the Son. God is one God who exists in three persons. This is a reference to the eternality of the Son as the source and the provider of all things. I think maybe an alternate, maybe even a better translation would be the Father of eternity. He is the source of all creation, time, and eternity. Isaiah says he is the Prince of Peace. He was born so that man could be reconciled to God, so that this holy God, so that we could actually be united to, brought back to this God who made us. And these are the names of God. These represent the attributes of God because this one who would be born would be God in the flesh, the God-man. This Redeemer is human, but he is fully God. Unto us a child is born, Isaiah said. So while never ceasing to be God... He experienced all the pains and struggles common to man uh, because he was also fully man. And I know that, you know, that transcends logic. You're never going to be able to analyze that and get it figured out. Fully God, fully man. In fact, I think the, the ancient confessions in the church father said he was truly God and truly man, uh, which means that because he was God, he is fully able to fulfill all of his promises. So here's the second point in terms of God's promises. Unlike every other promise maker, God has the sovereignty, wisdom, and might to keep all his promises. So we might say, you know what, I promise you I will do this a month from now. Or we may say, I promise you I will always be there for you. But we can't really say that, can we? Because we don't know we're always going to be there. We don't know what's going to happen when we leave here today. So when we make promises... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but every promise that we make should have next to it an asterisk that says, well, if possible, you know, I'll fulfill that, but if possible, but you can remove the asterisk when it comes to God because he is the God of sovereignty, might, power, and wisdom, which means that everything he says he will do, he always does. So when we read in the, the scriptures, the promises of God, we don't have to worry. Will God be true to his promises? He has the, all the power in the world to fulfill them. Those names given to Christ are the names that carry weight, glory, deity, names that indicate indisputable power. He shall be called the mighty God. Might in the Bible is often a reference to a proven warrior. One who's not been defeated. Indeed, one who cannot be defeated. The baby born in a manger is the God of all power who holds the universe in his hands and whose will can never be frustrated or derailed. Now, I make that point because, one, because I think it's possible 
to think about Christmas just being about a little baby, you know, a little baby in a manger and, you know, who's so cute. And we, you know, we drive by the illuminated nativity scenes and we think, oh, you know, that's how cute is that? It's adorable. And we think strictly in those terms. We have little miniature uh, sheep and shepherds and Josephs and Marys and a little Jesus in our, our, you know, our living room made of balsa wood and whatever. And there's nothing wrong with those. That's great. But we don't want to think that that's the extent of what Jesus is or was. We don't want to think that Christmas was only about what happened in that manger scene. We, at our house, we have, a, we have a manger scene that someone very kindly gave us 12, 12 13 years ago made out of wood. Uh, which we always every year put up in the middle, right in the front of our house, right, right on our front sidewalk. Um, let me get, show you a picture of it. Um, but then, now look at that closely. Then someone asked us, is that a manger scene or is that two dinosaurs fighting? You know, and then the thing is, once you see it as dinosaurs, you can't unsee it. So that the dinosaurs have remained in our garage for the last seven or eight years, ever since someone pointed that out. Because I can't get away from that. Um, but, you, you know, we can have these ideas. Some of you are still, where are the dinosaurs? Well, uh, Caitlin, remove that picture so I can get people back. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, we, we can have this idea that it's just this, you know, there's this little baby. And, and so, yes, Jesus entered the earth as a help, helpless baby in an animal stable. But he didn't remain a cute, helpless baby. He grew up to be the man who would... Live perfect obedience to God's commands, fully satisfy the law of God, and who would bear the sins of a people and conquer the enemy that no one else could, death and hell and the grave. So the things this coming would would accomplish, there was nothing childish about them. The government would be on his shoulder, we're told. He would inaugurate a new kingdom, a new reign that would include all those who would trust in him. This light, I mentioned, I go back to verses 3 through 6. This light, verse 3, multiplies the nations. In other words, no longer will the people of God be simply a small remnant of believing Israel. God will bring into the fold people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The light brings joy, verse 3. Gloom and anguish have given way to joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest. Both the farmer and the soldier, verse 4, will experience joy. And these provide illustrations to the joy that will come for all people, for all who trust in Christ, for all who come to the end of themselves, recognizing their own sinfulness, cry out in faith to this one who was sent by God. The oppressor will be removed, verse 4. The boot of the soldier who trampled Israel will be obsolete. Garments stained in blood will be burned in the fire as evidence that conflict is over. In other words, this Messiah, this true conquering king will bring about full peace. He will liberate and bring freedom to all of God's people. Now, what else does that mean for us, though? Is this just a history lesson? No, the freedom that God provides from his enemies is meant to show off and actually point to an even greater freedom. It's meant to foreshadow an even different victory that this God-man will secure. And all this is meant to point to the freedom from sin and death that Jesus will bring for his people. Now talk about walking in darkness. We've, if you were here for part of our Roman series in the early chapters, we've seen, especially chapters 1 through 3, the emptiness and the evil of all people apart from Christ. 
And we've seen we don't enter into this world as good people. We don't enter into this world as God-loving people. We enter into this world in, in darkness, in spiritual darkness, estranged from our Creator God. Not simply even indifferent to Him or ambivalent. We are warring against God, clinging to our own authority. That's the sort of darkness that Christ came to free us from. We see even in John chapter 3 and in Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus that unless a person is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Not simply that he can't enter it or join it. He can't even see it. He cannot, he's not even aware. He's under so much darkness. He's not even aware of God's redemptive activity in this world. By nature, we enter this world in spiritual darkness. We are rebellious people who've fallen short of God's standard. We live in darkness, unable to please God, unable to make ourselves good enough for God. So if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you're actually living in spiritual darkness. doesn't matter what church you've been a part of. You can, you can talk about your church history and all the places you've been. doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian family doesn't matter if you've been a Southern Baptist your whole life. If you've not repented and trusted in Jesus, you are living in darkness. Janine and I went out for dinner last night and our server, you know, was back and forth. And I noticed that he had a red bracelet on that said, Jesus loved you, loves you. So we, you know, developed a little bit of a rapport. And I said, hey, I noticed your bracelet says, Jesus loves you. He goes, yeah, Jesus does love you. I said, are you a Christian? And then he said... We'll never forget this one. He said, I was a Southern Baptist, but now I'm a Christian. So I, and I was actually afraid to ask any more about that. That's exactly what he said. He said, I was a Southern Baptist, but now I'm a Christian. So I'm just going to leave it alone. But um, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how godly your family was. If you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, you are living in spiritual darkness stumbling around in the dark, either trying to find meaning and happiness on your own, apart from Christ, or trying to work your way to God on your own terms. Neither will ever work. As I said, we're born separated from God, and we will remain that way until we turn in faith to Jesus. But that only happens as the light shines on us, illuminating our eyes and our hearts. All throughout this passage, there is the fragrance of grace evidence that life, joy, forgiveness, purpose, salvation, these things that we cannot secure on our own, these are the reason that God sent his son to bring those things, to free us from darkness, to free us from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of the law, to free us from death and hell. Yes, we will die physically, but for those who are in Christ, we will live for eternity with our Savior. Isaiah says in verse 4 of what Christ will do, you have broken the rod as in the day of Midian. Midian, going back in Israel's history, was a nation that threatened Israel in the days of, of Gideon. Midian's defeat was recorded in the book of Judges. And now of all the battles that Israel fought and won, and there are a lot of them recorded in the Old Testament, this one is an odd one. Why do you suppose Israel, uh, Isaiah brought this one up? Well, it was remarkable, not just for what happened, but how it happened. Israel employed what some might call the worst possible military strategy ever, Israel is surrounded by enemies in every direction. They're closing in. It's, you know, the walls are closing in, so to speak, and they feel the pressure. They feel 
the evil that's surrounding them. And what does God say? He says, I want you to shrink the army down from 32,000 to 300. We say, no, why would anybody do that? Israel would go on to defeat Midian. It had nothing to do with Israel's ingenuity, strength, or power. It was totally of the Lord. And Isaiah says, this is going to be like that. This salvation that the Messiah will bring is going to be like that. It will not be because of our ingenuity. It will not be because of our strategizing. It will not be because of our efforts or our good works or anything we can do. It will be the sort of salvation that we can only say, this is from the Lord. God's salvation, both of the world and of individuals, has nothing to do with human brilliance, effort, or ability. It will be totally and completely the Lord's doing. And I said, we see grace all over this passage. Verse 6 is where it's most acute. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. A son is given. I talk to so many people all the time in pastoral ministry who are either, and they, they don't say it in these terms, but their, their whole life is about working to pay God back for his salvation. And they always feel in debt. Or maybe it's those who are feeling like if I can just live a little bit better, if I can just do a little bit better, be a little bit more obedient, if I could just resist this one temptation one more time, then surely I've done enough to earn it. And because of that, you know, they're worn out, feeling the burden to kind of save themselves. They're overwhelmed with guilt, mad at somebody for something. Plus, they have the hardest time putting on humility or admitting that they're wrong because Again, though, though we'd never say it, they, this would jeopardize their standing with God. What will other people think of them? What will God think of them? So they live their life by the code of self-righteousness, never admitting failure, never confessing to sin. I must be right and everybody else must be wrong. Well, Isaiah has the answer here. To us, a son was given. If you're given something, that means you didn't earn it. The son was given to die on a cross where he would pay the penalty for our rebellion. The penalty that we deserve. The death we deserve. The son was given so that we could receive something we could never earn. The son was given to give rest to the weary, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, water to the thirsty. And all of this is ours by faith. By believing. It's ours because of grace. And when we realize that, we actually start longing to obey God more, worshiping God in spirit and truth, confessing of our sin more readily. We live more joyful, grateful, humble lives, and we live what Jesus called the fullest life imaginable. Isaiah 9 is a prophecy that reveals to us the world's only Savior, but it is a story of God's grace. Now, what's so interesting about this passage, among other things, is how Isaiah mixes up the future in the, in the past tense in terms of the verbs he uses. He's standing on his tiptoes, as one person has said, peering into the future. But he describes what he will see. He describes what will one day happen in the past tense. It's as if it's already happened because it's that certain that it will transpire. At this point, the people of Israel living in fear and slavery, as I mentioned, and, and, and the whole world is coming crashing around them. But Isaiah says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, even though the anguish is actually going on at that very moment. What Isaiah is doing is showing us how faithful God is. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman writes this about the passage. Past tenses 
are used to speak of events that, though future, are certain because they are divinely planned and predicted through an authentic prophet of God. These prophetic pre-perfects, perfect tenses, serve to present faith's faculty of imagination with the assurance of things hoped for. So what in the world does that mean? Here's our, our final point this morning as it relates to the differences between God's promises and everybody else's. Because of God's omnipotence, omni, all potence, power, because God is all powerful, his promises are sometimes delivered in the past tense. Fulfillment is so certain that in God's eyes, it's already happened. When God tells the people of Israel there will be no gloom, he is promising them that they will experience the fullness of joy. And he's saying in some ways, look, it's already happened. They know it actually hasn't happened. But he's saying that because it's so certain to be true that God, the all-powerful God, speaks about it in the past tense. And the same is true for us. God's promises for us are so true. We can absolutely count on them. And sometimes his promises to us. We saw the end of Romans 8. They occur in the past tense because they're that certain. You may want to be in a relationship, but God may not have that for you right now. You may want to be out of a relationship that you're in, but God may not have that for you uh, right now or any time in the future. You may long for children, and God may have that for you. Maybe he doesn't. You may long for uh, a more peaceful situation at home or some sort of tranquility at work. Maybe that's his plan for you in the near future. Maybe it isn't. But you can know this. If you are in Christ, one day... You will have everything your heart has ever longed for. And in the meantime, God will sustain you and comfort you and keep you by his grace. He will strengthen you and preserve you even now, giving you great joy in himself. Even when everything around you seems to be crumbling, he will show you that his grace is sufficient. And he will even, if I can use Isaiah's words, when your life seems like gloom and anguish, the zeal of the Lord will make joy for you. It's about God's great concern and delight, his zeal. He fired up about it to come to your rescue and to satisfy your heart with good things. God will be there for you and he will sustain you by his grace. And one day every trial and pain and struggle and heartbreak that you endure at this moment will be over and you will have complete happiness and perfect joy. In fact, it's so certain that this will be the end for you if you are in Christ. Joy unspeakable. That God talks about it as though it's already taken place. The entire world will be re renewed. It's so certain that God sees it as both future and past. Every longing of your heart will be fulfilled. And that's because the light has shone on the world. The one who is Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.